Hello and welcome to the Max Moo Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Lindsay Behrens. I am very excited to bring you this special episode, an interview with one of my favorite performers in New York City, Lauren Warsham. Lauren starred in A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, for which she was nominated for a Tony. She is the lead singer and co-founder of the indie pop rock band Sky Pony. And she recently starred in Dog Days, and opera at the Prototype Festival. She and her band Sky Pony have a new production coming up at Ars Nova. It's called The Wildness. And I cannot recommend more strongly that you get your tickets now. I will definitely be there. Enjoy the show. So today's the first day post-show for you. Mm-hmm. What is that like? Oh, you just heard me swallow. Um... Well, I've been doing the show for this show. I've been doing Dog Days. Yes. For three and a half years. More if you count, you know, the first time I sang one of the arias from the piece was, gosh, maybe five years ago. Mm -hmm. So I've lived with it for a very long time. And this felt in many ways um, like an ending, an end of an era at least. So, cause we don't know when the piece will be done again. Okay. Um, and it's, it's a very unique experience to do the same piece with the same company, you know, same director, same cast, same stage manager, um, four different productions over a period of three and a half years where you get to go away and come back to it. Um, and reassess and dive deeper each time. And I don't know if I'll ever have that experience again. So I think I'm processing, really. Yeah. Is yeah. it different than other shows that you've ended? Or oh, yeah. Um, how so? Well, the director of Dog Days um, is Robert Woodruff. Mm-hmm. And he, last night at our closing party, which kind of felt like a memorial in a way, um, he said something really amazing. He was talking about when he did Buried Child, um, which is amazing that he compared uh, Dog Days to Buried Child in the span of his career because he's had such an amazing career. But he said one of the actresses in Buried Child said to him, savor this moment because it's not ev- not every piece in your career is going to kind of click on all four cylinders for you, like artistically be a huge challenge have the cast that you just feel like is part of your family you know have those close relationships and also feels like it is an quote-unquote important piece or game changer in some way or new Mm -hmm. and um those experiences can sustain you throughout the rest of your career because you won't not every experience can be that nor should it be um so I'd say this piece was definitely that for me and has been that for me in that it was, it was a huge challenge for me as an mm-hmm. actor. It was scary. It was terrifying. And, and as a singer as well. And, um, I think it's made me grow and made me a better actor and a better singer and a better team player. And yeah, I saw it last night. Oh, you did. And <laughs> I'm curious to know what elements of it were scary for you. Was it the emotional arc of that character um, and going to such t- intense places? Going or to such else? In, I mean, acting wise, the scary parts were um, the epilogue, which mm-hmm. is that wordless 10 to 12 minutes at the end of the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, all the things that I have to do, have to put myself through the pacing of it. 
uh, was terrifying. And I, I remember before we opened, I said to my husband, which was three and a half years ago, I said, this is either the worst thing I've ever done or the best. <laughs> and it's, there's nowhere in between. Yeah. Um, so but it ended up being the best. Um, and then musically, it's incredibly challenging, the score. Not necessarily melodically, though that is also a challenge, but more uh, from a rhythmic perspective because David T. Little, the composer, is a percussionist by trade. So there's a lot of changing meter, changing tempo, and this one aria that I sing, the mirror aria, I cannot see the conductor the entire time. Mm -hmm. So when I first learned that, it was terrifying. And I used to to run to um, a MIDI of that song with uh, a click track in the back so that I could hear all the rhythm changes because it, you, you know, it would go from a, God, it's, it's like five, four to four, four to nine, eight, you know, back and forth. And these, these five, five beat measures into a four beat measure where it, it just keeps you disjointed the entire time. And to try to kind of groove with that and memorize that without having a conductor to, to look at for those cues was really scary. Um, but after three and a half years, <laughs> it finally kind of stuck. Uh, well, I imagine the additional challenge is not only is the music technically complicated, but you also go through an intense emotional swing just during that song. Yeah. And the way in which you act and sing a technically challenging role seemed to be particularly acute in that moment. Right. Well, the whole show is like that for me. Also, learning how to, as an actor, um, you know, I feel like... In many ways, it's kind of like my career in a nutshell because on the opera side, the focus is always so much on the music and getting the music correct and the tone of your voice and the vowels and everything sounding beautiful. And on the musical theater side and theater side, it's more about the storytelling and making sure everyone can hear every word. And yeah, it's, it's okay if you're a little flat as long as the emotion's there. And so kind of trying to combine those two and do both at the same time and at which point it's a constant negotiation in my brain of, okay, I need to take a deep breath here. I can't actually be too emotional because I have to count this and I have to make sure that my larynx is low enough so that I can sing this high note. But on the same side, I have to be enough, you know, emotionally invested enough to deliver the story so that people aren't just watching a concert. And so it is a, a negotiation, which is, you know, always, always hard. So let's go back. I want to, before we get into talking through each one of your shows too in depth, I want to uh, learn a little more about you. Cool. So where are you from? I'm from Austin, Texas. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Austin is the um, capital, the progressive city of Texas. Is that yes. what your childhood was like or was it like more typical Texas? My childhood was very typical Austin. Okay. Very, my parents are both ex-hippies. My dad still to this day sports a ponytail every once in a while he cuts it off every once in a while too um you know my mother put flowers and guns you know they were big uh hippies um but they're texas hippies which is a kind of a different breed of hippie you know mm-hmm. my family does shoot guns and hunts and we have a ranch and i did grow up riding horses and i you know uh that kind of thing my parents are both from texas grew up in texas and their parents grew up in texas so we're a couple generations in, but Austin, you know, is this wonderful, more so when I was growing up, less so now, but a wonderful kind of combination of like hippie cowboy, you mm-hmm. know, um, now it's kind of, it's weird to go home and 
there are people who live in Austin who aren't from Austin. Tons of them. Yeah. It's like one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in the entire country. Everyone's moving there, including my sister. So I'm interested to know about it. (laughs) It's not really how, when I was growing up, everyone in Austin was from Austin and Mm -hmm. you could do a, a, a Yui in the middle of the road anywhere. And, and then, you know, the dot com boom happened. That was kind of the first boom. And, um, people started moving in and then the traffic just started getting terrible because the city just wasn't prepared for mm-hmm. that influx of people. And, and now, I mean, the pluses of it are there's, there's an, some amazing restaurants there. Right. Um, <laughs> and you know, some, some amazing, um, culture, but I do feel like the, the real true culture and heart of Austin has kind of been pushed out to the margins. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was growing up, South by Southwest started out as something that we would go to. And now everyone tries to leave town because it's just horrible. My parents hide because you can't drive anywhere. Um, And also when I was growing up, you know, Austin City Limits started as a festival that we would all just go to. And then within that happened so quickly within three years, it felt like, you know, Nokia was there and it was Mm -hmm. this corporate thing. And Austin had never really been a corporate town in my experience. So that was a, you know... It's it's I feel bittersweet about it, but I mean I'm happy that they're that they're you know, providing jobs for people sure. and that it's growing and but it's also a little sad, um, you know, because it's not New York City. It doesn't have that infrastructure. It's like sprawl, yeah, um, which is and traffic. <laughs> um, whereas I feel like New York is kind of a city that has been built upon uh, a constant turnover of people and 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 immigrants and 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 you know uh what's the word for people who are immigrants within the country you know like not necessarily you know what i'm saying yeah out of towners (laughs) you know people come to new york to kind of find their dreams and so i i feel like it's a city that can hold that and can support that and i'm not sure that austin um is able to kind of maintain its integrity while also supporting all of that it's i feel like it's changed i guess is my point and what was your exposure to the arts like growing up there? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's another thing that's kind of changed. I grew up with like Austin, Texas blues was a huge music scene. Uh, like Tony Price, um, Luann Barton, um, you know, and I would, I would go see them and there are these awesome Texas blues singers, women. And, um, so one of the first things I started singing was, uh, Texas blues, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, with the, this guy who, painted houses for my dad who's in real estate his girlfriend was a singer and she taught me lessons felicia was her name um so that's one of the first things i sang and um then did you establish or did you discover your voice early that you have i mean i know it's a combination of hard work but also natural talent that gives someone a voice so how did you go about discovering yours i mean my mother likes to say that i was tone deaf until i was like four because i had um ear tumors Mm -hmm. from um very small i had very small ear canals so they kept putting in tubes and then i got ear tumors and she says before i got the surgery um I was tone deaf, but I mean, who isn't tone deaf before they're four? Um, but then I started singing, uh, you know, probably around six or so. And my mother always loved musical theaters, musical theater movies. So we watched Sound of Music and Annie and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And yeah, I'd say I started singing pretty young, quite young. I mean, the first public performance I think I did, I was probably, gosh, 10. 
And was that part of this bluesy project you were involved that with? That was or? part of this local theater community. Uh, Zach Scott had like a kids theater program. And I was in a production of Jonathan Livingston Siegel, the musical, um, which is as ridiculous as it sounds. And um, we all were seagulls. Um, and uh, I couldn't tell you much else about it. I don't really remember. But um, yeah, that was one of the first theater things that I did. And I always used to sing around the house and put on little shows with my friends. And was your perspective on it, this is a fun thing to do? Or were you obsessed instantly? Did you see a future yeah. in that? Yeah, I think... More than obsessed, I think I was very serious about it. Uh-huh. Like, this this is what I want to do, and this is my craft when I was, like, a child, uh, which is weird. Um, but always from a young age, I think I got my first agent just within – waiting to get an agent in Houston because there weren't really agents in Austin because um, it was a small city. Uh, when I was – gosh, because my mother was driving me, so I must have been, you know, 11 or 12 – and what did that lead to? Oh, nothing. A whole lot of nothing, really. I auditioned for some films um, when I was a little kid. Um, nothing really through the agents. I think I probably booked like a industrial through them. I don't even know what that is. Oh, it's like a hmm, like a video or a, it could also be live theater that's educational or corporate. Oh, okay. I think mine was on some Texas history chapter where I played some... Texas history figure, figure, but as like a 12 year old, <laughs> I don't remember really very well at all. So you didn't meet a claim as a child actor? No, no, thank God. <laughs> and I know you were a serious student because you yeah. went to a good college. Yeah, I was always a very serious student. I, um, yeah, you know, I, I always just wanted to do well in school and I enjoyed school. I enjoyed kind of the organizational aspect of it. Um, yeah, and I, Yale ended up being, um, when I did, um, in middle school, I think they did some sort of like preliminary college exploration activity, and uh, and I settled on Yale because I was confused between the drama school and the undergrad program, mm-hmm. and then as that, you know, became clearer in my mind as I grew older, I still just never kind of gave up the idea of Yale, and then I visited and did a semester, a spring, summer semester there. Um, my sophomore year and it was kind of just fell in love with the school and was going to an Ivy league school, something that people did where you were from or was it considered? Oh yeah. I a was unique thing to do big school. Um, my graduating class was 550 kids. So from my class, I don't know how many went to Ivy's, but I know there were two of us who went to Yale. Mm. Um, and I know there was definitely a couple who went to MIT and to Penn. I don't Reed went to Harvard. Um, yeah, but you know, probably one or two per each Ivy. And when you got to college, did you find the theater kids and immerse yourself or, um, huh? I mean, I would say my closest friends from college are not quote unquote industry people Mm -hmm. only because I, um, you know, I think, uh, a well-rounded life is a life better lived and I, I don't kind of want to spend my spare time talking about work. (laughs) So, I mean, not, which isn't to say that I'm not good friends with people in the theater community, but my best friends are lawyers, um, doctors, um, you know, community organizers. 
um, just because it gives me a better view of, of the world. It's not so insular. But um, what did I do when I got to Yale? I auditioned for Candide, and I play Kuniganda, and I also auditioned for an acapella group, which is really big at Yale. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and did that, Shades, which was a huge, hugely formulaic experience while I was there. Um, How so? Uh, well, Shades at Yale is considered the African-American group on campus. And I, growing up in a pretty segregated, uh, affluent white suburb of Austin, you know, hadn't had much exposure to, you know, talk, talk about race to people of different races, to people's different opinions. So that was a huge a hugely informative experience for me just to a meet people of color and talk to people of color and get to know people of color and hear people of color's opinions on the world and kind of open my eyes to, um, what I had been missing out on many things. Um, and the music was really good too. We, we were, we were good singers. At least we thought so. Who knows if I look back now and listen to it, I don't want to be disappointed. It's so idyllic in my head. Right. Um, but yeah. So you did not major in musical theater, though, right? No, you Spanish. Studied Spanish literature. Oh, that's an amazing skill to have. So useful. Yeah, <laughs> not, not, not really. really? No. Oh, I, would, I, I mean, would. love to speak Spanish. I wish I could speak any foreign language. I speak Spanish these days. Um, I went to Spain like three years ago. I spoke it there. I studied abroad in Spain in college, and I now really only speak it with um, the women who work at my nail salon, who are from Ecuador. Um, Mostly, those are the only people I speak in Spanish with, but, you know. But a good thing to have in your back pocket. Good thing to have in my back pocket, yeah. So then what came after that theater-wise? Uh, well, I graduated, and I thought, well, I can either move to Chicago or New York, because that's where the theater scenes are, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to go for New York, and I moved to New York City, and I got, gosh, like four jobs. My first job was as a line monitor for Spamalot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got there every morning and told everybody how much the tickets cost, how much the standing room tickets were and got to hang out with the box office guys. And they let me use their piano during the day downstairs. And I made friends with another guy there who, um, <laughs> who uh, was a composer is still a composer and I actually met him at colony music. He used to work there, which is closed now. Um, and then, uh, I worked that job. I also was a tutor, which I hated. Um, and I also did this thing for NYU where they teach doctors how to talk to patients Uh by having actors pretend to be patients. So that was really surreal. What diseases did you have? I think I was pregnant and I was raped. (laughs) It was like really intense, Um, but they had to like deal with how I shouldn't laugh at that. That's horrible. Um, but it was, it was a very intense experience for me and for these poor students who were coming in trying to like, cause they had no idea. Right. Um, what what they were going to see and they had to figure out like, why is she so, you know, um, cause it was all about bedside manner. Sure. So they gave them probably really intense circumstances. And Mm -hmm. I also did, uh, along the same lines of really, weird intense jobs uh doing the same job training social workers it's not funny i'm sorry i'm just laughing because it's uncomfortable um playing children who had been molested um and to teach social workers how to talk to children who had been molested and they didn't want to get actual kids so i i I look young now but i looked even younger when i was 22 um you know and that was also surreal because 
you know, they bring out these dolls and you have to point on the doll oh to where, God. oh, it was so intense. But those people, I will say, those social workers and the cops who did that program were some of the most foul-mouthed, uh, you know, the jokes they would tell, which are so, so perverse and so disgusting. And I understand it because that's what they do for a living and they encounter it every day. So they have to kind of have some catharsis. Right. Um, but it was, it was a... Presumably told in the break room, not during yeah, the Yeah, 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 <laughs> definitely, yeah, afterwards. Like, we all went out and got a drink, you yeah. know, which is also weird because they've been watching us play kids all day long, and then we all went out and had beer. Um, so those are some weird jobs. And um, I also sang for some friends who were at the Tisch Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program, and through that I met Bill Finn, and uh, through that I got an audition for Spelling Bee, the tour, mm-hmm. and then uh, I booked Olive on the tour of Spelling Bee which was about a year after college. So when you were younger, at what point did you think, I'm going to pursue this as my primary vocation? I mean, I I thought that I would pursue it as my primary vocation when I was younger. Then when I got to college, I thought I should do something sensible. And then about my sophomore year of college, I did this uh, Fringe Festival, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival production of myths and hymns adam gettle's myths and hymns which is beautiful um and it was um not very well attended and there would sometimes only be one person in the audience and we were there for two months and i realized that i i still could do that and i still wanted to do that then maybe i should do this for a living and that was kind of the decision making point for me Years later, I actually auditioned for Adam and told him that story. And I can't believe he still hired me because he, the way he tells it is I came in, I was like, I did miss and hymns. No one came, <laughs> um, which isn't, you know, well, that's how Edinburgh Fringe is. Yeah. There's a million shows going on so many. and you're half your job as a performer is getting people to your yes. show so that you're walking down that main drag and yep. people are flying you and as a non-performer but a couple of attendee a couple of times like you are so overwhelmed you it's very difficult to distinguish between yeah this show sounds um good i went i was the only person in the audience and was super uncomfortable versus you know this show who knew it was going to be wildly popular like yeah. you just did this very thick catalog and trying to discern it is very challenging yeah, the ones I saw that year that were hugely popular were Jerry Springer, the opera, mm-hmm. and this Russian ballet troupe's uh, production of Dante's Inferno. And I think they're a cult from Russia. Um, my husband told me this years later because he actually was there that same year. We just didn't. Oh, wow. Didn't. What year was that? Gosh. Oh, my gosh. It must have been. Was the summer? I think maybe it was. Oh my gosh, my brain. Oh, oh two, oh three, maybe. Mm. I think around there, sure. Um, yeah. Oh gosh, my brain. Early uh, aughts. Early aughts. Um, yeah, it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. This this man came out at one point completely naked with a pair of cowbells tied to his balls. Oh my. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you'll see at the fringe. It's going to be wonderful yeah. if anyone ever gets a chance to attend it. <laughs> So when you decided, yeah, I'm going to give this a roll, I'm going to try this out and try to make a career out of this, what did that even mean to you at that point? What was the dream you had in your head? Hmm. Um, you know, I think when I first started, I wanted to be cast in a Broadway show and I wanted to go to Broadway and, you know, win a Tony Award. And then as uh, time went on, it kind of changed and I kind of 
just wanted to make a living and I just wanted to do art that felt important and mattered to me. Um, and so, yeah, the gentleman's guide was kind of a surprise to me cause I had just auditioned for so many Broadway shows and gotten close, just had never been cast. So I, at that point I was more concentrating on new music and classical music and opera. Um, and so it was kind of a surprise, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, overnight success in 10 years. That's what they say. And um, what was it like to get cast in your first Broadway show? Very exciting. Very exciting. Uh, you know, Stephen Lutvac, the composer, was a big champion of mine from the beginning. And I know that, you know, people don't realize that in a casting room, having been on both sides, how one person can sway the tide. And I do think that he did that for me. Mm-hmm. And I you know, I'm very, feel very indebted to him for that, for taking a chance on me and believing in me and thinking that I could do it. And Gentleman's Guide, that entire original cast is made up of a lot of people who made their Broadway debuts because the producers, the composer, the director believed in them and just saw that they could do it and they didn't need to have a name. And I, I think that's pretty rare, at least was at the time. So... Well, and also rare for a production like that, that you know, Jefferson May is well-known, exactly. very respective actor, but he's not the superstar right. that's going to bring a show to town and he's not Denzel Washington financial and, and also a critical success. And yet that happened with that show. It's, well, it's quite a good a show. Path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there are lots of good shows. True. There was something special about that show. What do you think that was? You know, I, a lot of times I think that was kind of my experience at Broadway in general is it's, it's a weird combination of, of, of a business mm-hmm. and, and theater and art and, and it's a crapshoot what's financially successful because mm-hmm. there are some shows that are critically acclaimed and they have a niche audience, but you know, the tourists don't want to come in or there are also shows that the critics hate but audiences love mm-hmm. and they make a ton of money and yep. there's really no rhyme or reason to it. I think sometimes there's in the same way that why does some YouTube video succeed more than another? There's you tap into a moment, you tap into a time. And I think gentleman's guide came along at the perfect time. You know, it, it tapped into kind of a DIY aesthetic to, to that Downton Abbey's kind of sense mm-hmm. of past to, to the idea of just pure joy to, to the idea of, uh, you know, just meticulously done uh, without spectacle, you know, just people on stage just doing their very best and at the top of their game. And it was entertainment, pure, wonderful entertainment. And I think people were really looking for that in that year. And how did the dream you have of booking a Broadway show, being nominated for a Tony, compare to the reality of booking a Broadway show and being nominated for a Tony? Hmm. Well, booking a Broadway show and the dream of booking a Broadway show were pretty similar, I'd say. You know, it was, I mean, by that point, I'd, I'd done so many theater pieces mm-hmm. that it wasn't as daunting and scary. Um, it was just another theater piece. But the first day in the Broadway theater felt pretty magical and wonderful. And opening a night felt magical and wonderful. Um, so that kind of, those two, I think my expectation kind of met reality pretty equally the Tony nomination, I was totally not expecting. Mm. And, and I was surprised by how it actually made me completely doubt myself in a way that I was not expecting it to. Um, you know, 
there's this thing called imposter syndrome that I think a lot of women get. But yes, we do. I, it just made me it, instead of having the reaction of "Wow, that's nice." that people liked my performance. It was, Oh God, how do I live up to people's expectations? Why did they think I did this? You know, what was it that I had done and how do I replicate that? And how am I going to, and why is it someone else wasn't nominated who should have been nominated? And, you know, for instance, Lisa O'Hare, who is also in the cast and we had basically the same size role and who's an amazing actress and who'd been with the piece longer than I had. And that was weird. Um, and just awkward and, and made me feel terrible and made her feel terrible. And, mm. you know, you do realize it really is a crapshoot too, like who gets nominated. Cause there's so many performances that don't get nominated that are brilliant. Um, yeah. So that was a really intense experience and I don't think I really enjoyed it until after I had performed at the Tonys and uh-huh. then I had a great time. Um, but before that, I didn't really enjoy it. I will say I really enjoy taking photos on, on the, all the step and repeats. That was fun. <laughs> that part I enjoyed. Did you get a fancy outfit? Every, oh yeah. Every, every, cause there's, so, that's the other thing you don't realize is it's, um, it's political. You campaign. Yeah. So unlike the Oscars where you did your movie a year ago and now you're still out campaigning and going to all these interviews, all the performers on Broadway still have to perform at night. Right. In addition to waking up at 4 a.m. to be on Good Morning America and then going to a cocktail party where you can't even drink because you have to do a show, but it's really loud and you have to talk to everybody and you have to schmooze. And it's, it's, it, you know, that was a very surprising experience for me because it made me realize that it, it, it's a business, you know, it's a political business and we are there to help this show make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, uh, hard for me to wrap my head around. Are you a natural extrovert? Are things like that easy for you or is it very challenging? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a natural extrovert, but, um, when I'm in shows, I tend to live like a nun. Like Mm. I don't, I don't really drink. I don't go out to bars. I don't go out. I don't talk in any loud places. I don't stay out late. I, I try not to eat dairy and too much sugar. Like I'm like, cause that's just the way I know that I can like maintain, Um, so that was challenging to suddenly be at the most intense time of, of the performance of the piece when people are saying it has to be the best it ever has been Mm -hmm. while also getting less sleep, less vocal rest, less time to just decompress less everything. Um, that was intense. I mean, you're faced with a challenge like that of feeling insecure and doubting yourself, but also greater, um, needs on your time and your energy than ever. What is it that pulls you through it? What do you turn to, to get the confidence and the energy you need? Um, I discovered during that time period, um, this woman named Pema Chodron. Uh She's a, a American Buddhist nun. Um, but I, I started meditating to try to basically calm all the judgy thoughts in my own head. Um, and that's, I think really one of the things that and my husband that got me through that period. I mean, in retrospect, I wish I had just let go and enjoyed it, sure. but it's a lot easier to say in retrospect, you know, cause I mean, it is, it is a crapshoot and it is, can just be silly. I mean, the year I was nominated, Celia Keenan Bolger was also nominated for, uh, her role in glass menagerie, mm-hmm. but she wasn't in performance at the time. And I remember her saying that it was so much easier, Oh, sure. <laughs> but at the same time, she also felt kind of ungrounded because she didn't have that 
reason to be campaigning. You know, it was just kind of icing. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, sounds kind of nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned your husband, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Um, you two are quite the theater power couple. Do you feel that way? Um, I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, he's he's pretty wonderful. How did you two meet? We met at a party. Um, Kyle's band before the band we have now, mm-hmm. um, Super Mirage was playing at a party and, uh, we met at a party and I gave him my number and, uh, he called me <laughs> the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the end, the beginning, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, did you start out with mostly a personal connection or an artistic connect- connection? Oh, neither. I mean, well, I guess we just, we thought each other were hot, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You know, he was in a band he was playing in a band and there's really nothing sexy. He looks super hot. (laughs) He had no idea who I was. Baby blue sunglasses. Not then. He's always wearing glasses. We didn't have the baby blue ones. Um, yeah, he just looked super hot and he had no idea who I was, you know, and what I did for a living. He thought I was an intern from Williamstown, which was hilarious. It's the first thing he said to me. He's like, hey, didn't I see you at Williamstown this summer? Like, aren't you? Because he thought I was some 22-year-old. <laughs> and I was like, who are you? Um, but yeah, then we fell in love. And, uh, you know, the artistic collaboration came later. Oh, really? Yeah. When did you start working together? Sky Pony, uh, our band, came together, I guess. Man. When did we first do it? I remember I remember the discussion. We were in the car and I had said something disparaging to him along the lines of, well, you're not really a composer. You're a songwriter. And then he had said something kind of disparaging to me along the lines of, well, you don't get called in for rock musicals because you just don't sing like that. And um, so it kind of became a, well, I'll show you. We'll work together and we'll kind of meet each other on both of those challenges. Um, and that's how we started the band. Um, and it's, it's been pretty wonderful. It's, it's really great to be able to, to do stuff together and, and have equal involvement in things that we create. Um, What are your respective roles in the band? Um, well in the band, in its normal life, Kyle writes the music. Um, and I, I give input on lyrics, but mostly I do the vocal arrangements and all the harmonies and all the choreography and all the costumes and all the crazy ideas for the stage shows, um, is my contribution. So that's, um, probably if someone has never seen Sky Pony, they may not realize that your contribution is significant in this rock band, whereas in other rock bands, (laughs) it might not be as we're very Large. theatrical. You're yeah. very theatrical. There, um, I was actually going to ask who does the choreography because there's a lot of choreography yeah. and I really love it because it's um, somewhat minimalist, but it's I like the repetition. Yeah. Uh, there are three it's female like singers. Yeah, yeah. And it's, <laughs> you just don't see that very much in contemporary rock music. Yeah. We like to put on a show. Yeah. That's what we say. Yeah. And we always try to have some weird thing that we do where we... I mean, we've had suits that like trash bags that we were wearing that we ripped open and balloons came out and then inside the balloons were Easter eggs with candy. And oh, wow. we've had shows where we've, you know, we've thrown glitter out into the audience, but they thought it was drinks and we've had I shows. I one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just do wacky, weird things. Um, 
because it's fun and that's the part i really enjoy mm-hmm. that the performance and the um the singing so yeah and you released a couple of albums one very recently yes how did it come about that you this explain to me how the more recent album come came out i don't know anything about the music industry but i got the sense that this was like a sort of level up for you guys yeah we um we got in touch with knitting factory records through some friends uh who are also fans of the band who happened to work with knitting factory and uh through them we got a record deal and put the album together mm-hmm. and um and uh worked on it this summer we recorded it um at sneaky studios which is duncan sheik's studio and kyle and duncan are friends from the theater world and michael tudor uh who also produces duncan's music um produced our album and really kind of level upped it as Mm -hmm. you say um and so we have a marketing budget and you know fancy stuff like that now um but yeah it's we're really proud of it you know we spend a lot of time and and work on it we're very proud of it it sounds great thanks i really loved it i mean i loved the first one too and a lot of the songs overlap it was really yeah. interesting from like i said a somewhat of a musical novice myself just in the appreciatory role to go oh same song different production of it yeah I like it. yeah it's like interesting to hear the two versions yeah we tried to kind of focus more on the music aesthetic of it and really focusing in on the i mean there's so much that goes into producing an album um beyond just playing the song you know which instruments do you play where where do you mute them where do you bring them out what instruments do you add Mm -hmm. you know that sort of a thing um you know and the microphones just like the different microphones that you use for each song and each instrument change and change the sound of a tune and you know it's it's pretty wild um we had a great time what's your favorite venue to perform with sky pony at in the city huh huh we really like Mercury Lounge. Mm-hmm. They have great sound there. And I think it's also an easy venue for people in the city to get to. Um, we love the Knitting Factory. We've been there a lot. You know, it's a lot of fun. But I'd say Mercury Lounge. Yeah. So I'm not usually interested in, like, diving super deep into, like, the meaning of artistic performances. But I have to ask you about two songs. Okay. <laughs> so... The first one is um, the title track from the first album, Say You Love Me Like You Mean It. Now, when I was listening to that song, I thought it was um, more of a like relationship song. Yeah. But then I watched the video online. Yeah. It has a lot of religious imagery. <laughs> and I was just wondering where that came from and what it meant. Um, the religious imagery, I think, was more just because we like the... We're, we're kind of fascinated by the idea of cults and how rock music... Um, and fandom kind of uh, relates to religious fandom and uh, obsession. So that's that was kind of interesting to us in that song. And for Kyle and I, that song has always kind of been about um, kind of like a threat, kind of a, an obsessive uh, woman <laughs> saying to someone, say you love me, how like you mean it, you don't know how bad I need it, is kind of a, a threat more than a, a sweet thing. Sure. Um, so we see that as kind of a powerful, somewhat scary female figure, as most of the songs are, which says a lot about how Kyle sees me. But, um, <laughs> but. Well, we'll try not to read too much into your relationship about the music. Um, where does the interest in like cults come and that sort of Kyle. religious symbolism? That comes from him? Kyle majored in religious studies at Yale. Oh, really? Um, yes, he did. He, he his The way he describes it is uh, his decision to major in religious studies came from the fact that he he took all these history classes and they'd say, well, you know, the civil war was actually about economics and the crusades were actually about, you know, 
probably fucking economics too excuse my language <laughs> and then um you know uh you know the holocaust was also about economics but he was like not the people who were fighting these wars to them a lot of it was about religion mm-hmm. and blindly following I mean, the current situation that we're in with jihadists and isis etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. to the people who are actually blowing themselves up it's not about oil or water or resources it's about Allah, you know, Mm -hmm. so that's what made him want to focus on religious studies and why, um, people, uh, you know, do allow themselves, some people allow themselves to go to certain extremes in the name of something that they've never, you know, have no evidence of. Um, and I believe, uh, that's what led him to write, um, a very merry unauthorized children's Scientology pageant mm-hmm. for which he won an Obie and yes. was blacklisted by the Scientologists who hate him. Um, <laughs> he's in good company. Right. Um, because you know, he's very fascinated by that. And, um, he continues to be very fascinated by that. We have a lot of religious art in our house. If mm. you were to visit our home, you would think we are Catholic or Jewish perhaps. Um, cause we have both. We also have like Hamsas and like, you know, hand of Fatima everywhere and lots of crosses and a couple of Jesuses. Um, he's just really into religious art and you know, what, what spurs people. Is it purely academic or is there a personal element to it? You know, he wasn't raised religious at all. Um, I think he's just interested in, in faith. I would say that would be the personal aspect of it, but mostly, uh, mostly academic, I guess. Interesting. <laughs> All right. So this probably leads to the second song that I want to ask specifically about. And I, like I'm sure many of your fans, really, really love this song, which is Everyone Will Die. Yeah. <laughs> so there, the lyrics essentially are... Well, there are many lyrics, but one line, sort of the ultimate line, is everyone will die someday, everyone will end up with nothing, and though I don't know why, that makes me feel better. So I'm curious, um, Kyle wrote that song, I assume. Yeah. And um, what does that song mean to you? Uh, I'd say to all of us, it's kind of an embrace of... um I mean, it's a dark way of saying carpe diem, you know, mm-hmm. um, we're all going to die. No one gets out of this thing alive. Right. So, you know, all the shit that we go through, all the hard times, all the obsessive thinking, all of the jealousy, all of the envy, all of the feelings of failure, all of the feelings of just being completely lost and not knowing what you're doing. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter. We're all just, we're all going to die. And in a way that makes me feel better, <laughs> you know, that yeah. it's the end result is the same. Right. You know. So do you think that the statement, every woman will die and that makes me feel better? Like the speaker of that sentence, do you think that person's taking solace in the death of him or herself or in other people dying? I think. Or both. That's also an answer. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think in in the everyone of it that yeah. you and me uh, at the end of the road are equal. We're all just dust, you know. It you flips and I. a very scary idea on its head. Yeah, which is Kyle's. You know, I so say, brilliant. That's one of the one of the most brilliant. He's a very. Uh, He's an outer shell of darkness surrounding a gooey, hopeful, faithful, sweet, (laughs) sweet center, Um, which is what most of his writing is. Ultimately, there's a lot of really kind of bleeding heart surrounded by a dark comedy, Mm -hmm. which is Kyle in a nutshell. It's a great combination. (laughs) He's pretty great. (laughs) 
Um, so you have a new show coming up. Yeah. It's officially a Sky Pony show. It is. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. called The Wilderness. The Wildness. Oh, I'm sorry. The Wildness. I like The Wilderness, though. That's my dyslexia, not my Don't, lack of research. There's wilderness in the show, so <laughs> it, it totally makes sense. Um, tell us about it. Yeah. Uh, we, we wrote the show, Kyle and I, together. The words and the text are both Kyle and I. The music is Kyle. Um, we also have some interstitial music, which is written by Kevin Wonderlick, who is a guitarist for Sky Pony. Um, and the only other member of the band proper who is in the stage show is Dave Blasher, who's a cellist. We're so happy he's in the show. <laughs> Aren't we all? He's adorable. <laughs> he is beautiful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because, you know, the other band members, a lot of them have, well, all of them have uh, real quote-unquote jobs Ah. including um dave who's taking time off from his law job oh wow actually uh to do the show but um yeah uh the bassist eric day is a teacher uh, and cannot take off that much time Mm. um and then our two backup singers jesse suzuki is finishing uh, her degree a teacher's college in uh psychology uh and and uh the other backup singer Kristen, uh just took a job in seattle so oh, no. yeah but it's understandable you know oh, sure. you gotta you gotta go where the, the money pays you know and the health insurance comes in and then our drummer is a voiceover artist so he mm. just can't he literally can't be unavailable because he misses out on on jobs yeah. during the day so he could do nights but he can't just do during the day theater you know we have to rehearse during the day. Got to rehearse sometime. So it's a bummer that not everyone can be involved, but um, it is the Sky Pony aesthetic um, t- to the nth degree because we have amazing designers on board. You know, we have an amazing director, Sam Buntrock. We have the support of both Ars Nova and the play company. It's going to be pretty epic. Yeah. It sounds like it. Now, I read the announcement for the show that Ars Nova put out, and there were a lot of complicated instructions about when and how to buy your seat Mm -hmm. so can you give us some guidance on that so the seating is divided up into sections okay and each section has a clever little name because Uh we we don't want to be boring with zone a zone b zone c never so it's the candy section the knife section the boot (laughs) section uh and of course all those sections will relate to the story once Mm -hmm. you arrive and it's part of the fun is discovering how um, and the reason why the seating was done that way is because we didn't want to do a traditional stage show where people come in, they sit down, they have an expectation, entertain me. You know, our rock shows, you come in, you stand around, you're drinking a beer. So we want to kind of start off the show in the same vein. Um, the show will eventually be seated because we're not going to ask people to stand Excuse me, the entire time. But um, the reason why we've sectioned off is it makes it a lot easier to get people into their seats once it's time to sit. Got it. Yeah. How did you get connected for with Ars Nova for the show? Well, uh, Kyle has done some work with them in the past. He was a part of the play group with Lin-Manuel Miranda and uh, Liz Merriweather back in the day. And Jason and he, Jason Egan, uh, have always wanted to do something together. And uh, yeah, gosh, was it three or four years ago? We did three years ago. We did a, a workshop of a piece called Raptured with the play company, who I've been mm-hmm. friends with over mm-hmm. the years. And Jason Egan came to see that loved it and um talked to kate lowald of the play company and they have been talking also for a couple years about wanting to do something together and they decided that this was kind of the perfect project and so we redeveloped it it's changed a lot since that initial workshop three years ago um and now it's under the helm of both of those companies 
Very cool. Yeah. Those are great partners to have. Both yeah. produce great stuff. Yeah, yeah, they do. And they're also friends, which is nice. Mm-hmm. You know, it does feel, um, it feels like we are trying to create some art, mm-hmm. which I would say is the main difference between, you know, you were speaking about earlier, um, kind of deciphering Broadway versus deciphering off-Broadway. And I would say in general, off-Broadway, you will probably see more failures but you're also going to see more risks because Mm -hmm. i do think people are trying to try new things for the sake of trying new things and create new things where i do feel like on broadway people are trying to create commercial things that are going to run and 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 justify the cost because it costs a lot to put a broadway show up on the stage so those are kind of the differences you're going to get if you want something crazy risk-taking i'd say go downtown go see something off broadway if you want a huge spectacle that's been polished to a t Go to Broadway. Sure. Yeah. Have you ever been a part of a production that you thought was a failure? That oh. I thought was a failure. <laughs> Versus other people, I guess, thinking it's a failure? Yes, I have. I have. What was that like? You don't have to tell us the name. Of I it. will not tell you the name. <laughs> um, I say I've been in a couple where I wasn't really totally satisfied with the end product. Um, but... Uh, you know, I think it's my job as, as a performer to draw meaning from anything that I do. Otherwise it's, it's just a job. Um, and I try not to think about it that way because I'm, I'm very lucky to make a living doing it, Mm -hmm. doing this. So, um, but it can be, I mean, you know, if everyone in the cast feels like it's a failure, it's becomes kind of depressing. Not going to lie. What have you taken away from those experiences? Uh, hmm. <laughs> you, you, you really can't predict, you know, you really can't predict because you get cast in a show, you know, you may be so excited by the material. You may be so excited by the director or so excited by the design ideas, but you know, all, in the very end, it comes down to a bunch of people coming together and putting all their ideas and their personalities together. So you never really know what you're going to get until you stir it all together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, no risk, no reward. So I wanted to ask, you recently announced that you're pregnant. I am. Congratulations. Have you seen it? <laughs> it's. I can stand up and show you. It's That's just okay. recently popped this really? past week. Yeah. It's insane. Well, I was just curious about um, whether you felt because of the show you were in and some things you had to do in that show, whether you needed to make that announcement or what motivated. Dog days? Yeah. Oh, totally. I'm so is vain. That what, is I'm, that what it was? I'm the vainest human being on the planet. And I did not want, because I have done it myself. I had a friend who recently got pregnant. And she came over to our house and I, you know, was thinking, man, she's, she's put on a little weight, hasn't she? (laughs) And then of course, like a month later, she announced that she's pregnant. Uh So I know if I can be that asshole, then I'm sure everyone can be that asshole. And I'm just trying to preempt people being that asshole (laughs) by, um, by announcing. Plus we, we were out of the woods now, the quote unquote miscarriage woods. So. Yeah, and at this point, I can't really hide it if I'm wearing normal clothes. We we did some strategery in dog days to mm-hmm. try to not have it stick out as much. Um, but in the show that we're doing at Ars Nova, we've built it in. And oh, really? Oh, it'll be it'll be hanging out. Yeah, cool. Yeah, because we're playing ourselves. So, oh, you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> it's kind of like a, it's like a concept lo- album live on stage. Uh-huh. Story within a story. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Just. I'm more and more excited about it. It's it it's so you know, cool. it's a ride. I'll put it that way. Like yeah. all of our shows, you know. Is all the music original? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. 
<laughs> it sounds like it. Well, I can't wait. I hope um, I'm sure we'll be talking about it on the podcast. <sighs> so I wanted to ask about just one more thing. Um, you have your own opera company. the Coterie? Yes. Oh, gosh, I know. Royce Fabric and I founded that together years ago when we were young and idealistic. And we, um, we both have become so busy that we haven't done too much with it. Um, but we did, you know, get 501c3 status and all of that. It's just, um, it's a lot to run a business, especially when your, your careers start taking off in their two divergent ways. Um, Royce, uh, is a librettist and is, gosh, he's got works up with Opera Philadelphia, Opera St. Louis, uh, Fort Worth Opera, uh, Houston Lyric. I mean, he's just working constantly. And uh, as yeah, am as I, are you. <laughs> but he and I are, he's like my other, he isn't like, he is my other husband in the sense that I have a contractual obligation with him. <laughs> um, we are, we are married in the law, uh, to this company and to each other. And he has uh, been an incredible partner, uh, on stage and off, you know, he writes just some of, he has written the best role for me ever dog days. Um, he knows my strengths and weaknesses and, you know, I, I would follow him to the ends of the earth. And in fact, uh, the same team of dog days, Robert Woodruff, David T. Little and Royce Fabric, um, are doing a, another piece, which will come out probably in two and three years, um, called woman in the dunes, uh, which I will be in, which will oh, be another, really? yeah. Epic opera brutality. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. You know, they just, um, they, they, uh, push me in ways that I don't normally get pushed, which is really satisfying. How, how do they push you? Well, you know, I, I'd say most roles that I tend to get cast in, um, commercially are, uh, ingenue-ish. Um, and they put me in situations that involve urine (laughs) 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 and being really angry. Yeah. And, um, they write complex. I mean, Royce writes incredibly complex, female characters Mm -hmm. with a lot of anger and a lot of heart. And I don't think that that's something that we see often on stage. Um, especially I guess in musical theater, I don't know why with the exception of maybe mama Rose, that's a character where you get to see a woman, you know, battling those kind of emotions. Um, but otherwise women are kind of expected to be sunshiny and pretty, especially sopranos. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, good. That's another thing we have to look forward to then. Yeah. Well, in two to three years, <laughs> you know, we understand there's a long runway to these things. Oh man. They, yeah. Gosh. It's a really long time. They sure do. But in the meantime, we have your show at Ars Nova coming up in February. And tickets are on sale now. Awesome. And discounted the first week, I believe. Oh, With well, the code BRAVE ONES, all caps. We Ooh. can tweet that out. <laughs> Get the word out. Awesome. Well, this was great. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was nice getting to know you. Likewise. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Maximu Podcast. You can find us all on Twitter, including our guest. Lauren is at Warsham Lauren. W-O-R-S-H-A-M-L-A-U-R-E-N. Her band Skypony is at Skypony1. S-K-Y-P-O-N-Y and the number one. I am at Lindsay Barons, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y-B-A-R-E-N-Z, and Maximu is at Maximu, M-A-X-A-M-O-O. We'll see you next week.